Welcome to episode 17 of Wait What? Sports Biz Chat with DP and McGee. The podcast where we take a sometimes irreverent, sometimes cynical, and sometimes serious look at the business of sports. I'm your co-host, Tim McGee. And I'm David Paro. So let's get right to it. David, what's on your mind? You are back in your regular studio uh, <laughs> off the road. What's That's going right. On? That's right. I'm not racking up uh, sky miles right now. Well, I mean, it's it's kind of a cool week, you know, uh, NBA playoffs in full swing and the NHL playoffs, Stanley Cup playoffs starting. Um, but there was a big news story that happened that needs to have a lot of focus on it because it has ripple effects in everything. And that's the news about Mark Emmert announcing that uh, by June of 2023, he's going to step down as the president of the NCAA. And it comes at a, a pretty remarkable time, uh, a lot of upheaval going on in college sports. Uh, I don't think this is a surprise to anyone at all. I don't think it was his decision necessarily alone. Uh, I also don't think he's going to stick around until June of 2023, depending on how the search goes. But the the search for the successor is going to be one of the most intriguing executive searches going on in the sports biz for the last few years. There's no doubt about it. Uh, college sports certainly is at a tipping point, given uh, given what's going on with NIL, given what's going on with the transfer portal. Um and the fact that the NCAA and the members just voted to basically give the divisions and, in essence, the conferences the power to write their own constitutions. So I, I think there's going to be so much importance on what the NCAA even is. Obviously, what is going to be its involvement, if at all, in college football at the highest level? What the mission of the organization is going to be in terms of what it controls and what kind of penalties it can dish out. So uh, there's going to be a lot of eyes on this uh, on this search. As I said, there's a couple names that are already rising uh, to the top. Um, Dan Gavitt being one who runs the basketball operation. And one of the things that the NCAA is com- consistently heralded as doing very well in. Um, and he's the current SVP for basketball. Um, one name that uh, that I'd like to see get serious consideration is Val Ackerman. But the one question is going to be is whether or not they come from inside I don't think they're going to go back to another president. They've done that the last few times, and I think they need a change in that. The question is, are they going inside the athletic field or going out to a candidate like, say, Condoleezza Rice, who has been mentioned? I, th- I think we, we talked about this on an earlier episode when we were discussing NIL, which is what is the role of the NCA going forward? They seem to have ceded so much control to the universities and the conferences. Um, do they become simply uh, an event organizer, albeit one that puts on one of the biggest events on the sports calendar, the men's and women's Final Four, but then the other 88 or 89 championships, whatever they're up to now? Um, you know, I worked very closely with the NCAA when, when I was uh, on the brand side. Um, they were not an easy organization to work with then. Um, they've been sort of uh, always accused of, being inconsistent in the uh, in the way they meted out punishment um, for violations by their member institutions, uh, I, I guess the question is, you know, who's going to watch the the member institutions uh, if the NCAA's mandate and mission changes uh, dramatically? But the names that you mentioned all really, uh, I think, would be great names. I'm going to throw one in the in the in the ring. Somebody who 
we haven't heard much of uh, lately, but was very actively involved in the men's basketball championship for many years, Greg Shaheen, who I think is one of the smartest people uh, I have ever had the pleasure of working with in the sports business. Yeah, I think the thing that's going to be interesting is how many great names and potential people wouldn't want to touch this job with a 10-foot pole. It is not an easy job, and it's walking into an absolute hornet's nest of, of different interests right now. There's no doubt about that. Um, and, you know, we've talked about NIL a fair amount, haven't necessarily figured it all out because there still is a lot to figure out, of course. But, you know, when we had Russ on the show, Russ Spielman, you know, we talked about the challenges of these collectives that are being formed by all the big schools and what that means. And, and the problem isn't the problem isn't that student athletes are, are getting a chance to cash in on their NIL or for that matter, even being allowed to transfer without the penalties that used to come with that transfer, with the creation of the transfer portal in, in, in 2018. Um, but the fact that there was no there was no preparation, there was there was no they weren't set for this ruling that got handed down. Uh, by the Supreme Court or, or affirmed ruling that uh, that was that was given by the Supreme Court to allow this to happen. And and what happens is all the moneyed interests uh, are the ones that that flow out there. Um, and so do I blame an athlete and his agent now for saying I want to strike the best possible deal with no real rules in place? I really don't. And I and I say all this because it just shows you how important this job is is going to be. And maybe it just becomes something completely different, just another form of, of entertainment, uh, kind of like a semi-pro situation. Um, uh, the, the AD from Notre Dame has talked about this uh, recently and, and potentially suggesting that as things are, it's not sustainable. Many people have said it's not sustainable. His feeling is, is that we'll end up with two different kinds of college sports, one where where the uh, where the athletics is a real part of the uh, academic institution, and another part that's just for you know entertainment to promote the school. Uh, I think that's kind of a classic thing from a Notre Dame person to say, but mm -hmm. um, but uh, there's some some you know logic uh, uh, based on on what's being seen out there uh, to that being a possible future. Yeah, basically, I could see the NCAA playing a similar role as it has up until this point with division two and three schools whereas the division one schools then become sort of that separate entity um this is this is a role that uh another name just to throw out there oliver luck who left the ncaa um, i'm sure his name is in the mix as well i'm trying to think as we're talking well one of the names that i actually thought was pretty interesting even though he's a even though he's a dookie that has come up is jay billis and the reason hmm. I say that is, is because he, and I've been around him a little bit and he definitely doesn't care. Meaning he'll say what's important. He couldn't really, his name had popped up uh, at some point, but since ESPN where he has a deal with was so involved in, in college athletics, I think it was, uh, uh, it was a difficult thing for him to do, but, but I think if they came to him, he might talk about it. He's very smart. He has a legal background. Um, and he cares about the he cares about the sport, uh, so I, I thought he would be an interesting. But that's part of why I think Val Ackerman is is a good choice. I, I think what she's done, first of all, establishing the WNBA, mm -hmm. her, she has a legal background, um, uh, and then what she has done with the Big East at the time where the Big East could have completely folded, um, I think was impressive with the with the move out of all the football programs and then maintaining 
biggie strength is a basketball power. So um, uh, I think she would be a good choice, but it, you know, her, her, her background is very much on the basketball side. Um, and therefore, you know, I don't think the power five commissioners that are making most of their money off of football really even care that much about what, what this role is, but if it's going to have any involvement in the standards that college athletes have to meet, then, you know, I, I think, I think the right person, a strong person uh, that has connections and relationships with all the key constituencies can at least build some sort of consensus consensus to your point of what the hell the NCAA even is. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. So sh shifting gears. Yeah. I know you're a huge pickleball fan, um, but we're not going to talk about pickleball today. We've already promised our listeners that we'll do a, uh, an episode on pickleball at some point in the future, but I want to talk about cricket yeah. for a minute. Um, the the broad the the media rights for the IPL right the Indian Premier League going to go for a billion dollars a year. Um, number one, number two, cricket is the second most popular sport in the world behind football, or as we call it here, soccer. Um, and number three, there is actually uh, a professional major league here in the United States now, Major League Cricket. Um, and then fourth or fifth, I can't count that high. Um, they are building the first cricket specific venue in Southern California in Orange County. It's gonna be a 30,000, or excuse me, a 10,000 seat venue. Um, and uh, and they, they, they say that there's uh, over 300,000 cricket fans just in Orange and LA counties. Oh. So I think, you know, listen, it's way too early to make any predictions on how big cricket will grow in America, but it's something I'm going to keep an eye on. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's interesting. I, I actually had um, a little bit of dealing in cricket or at least some exploration of cricket fairly recently um, through an outfit called Willow TV, which is uh, the, the North American district has the North American exclusive distribution rights to all of the leagues here. Uh, and it's a streaming service primarily, but also uh, accessible via smart TV and, and connected TV. So, um, it, and it is fascinating. The demos are amazing. Very high net worth uh, group of individuals. A lot of people that have come here from the very popular countries, the very popular cricket countries, India specifically, uh, but of course, obviously Australia uh, and various other parts of the, uh, uh, of the world. So, you know, one of the things that's interesting about sports like this is that um, there, while there's a lot of content out there and, and a lot of inventory, I guess, on a global basis, those that follow the sport and while they follow it primarily from, you know, say a country or a, le a league that they, they follow most closely, they know about all the world competition. And it is similar to football in that way that it, it, you know, the world's connected through it. One of the things that we don't get, or I shouldn't say we don't get, but the traditional U.S. sports fan doesn't understand some of the sports and their global uh, uh, connectedness. Cricket and soccer uh, are, are two that have that. So therefore, the people that follow, follow in a big way. What does that mean? Uh, that means that you can dr drive um, great numbers from a, from a television standpoint and very targeted numbers that you can understand who these people are, which then means 
awesome sponsorship opportunities um, because you know your audience and you can get to them on something that they're just super passionate for and will put almost anything else off to um, watch the game that they want to watch. Yeah, I think a lot of people, myself included, in the sports industry, consider themselves uh, somewhat um, knowledgeable about global sports, right? Um, but it just this just reminded me of how provincial I can be in my thinking at times because I I didn't understand the size and scope. A billion dollars a year in a yeah. rights fee. Yeah. That's you know, that's not nothing. No, it's 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 quite something. Uh it it, it is huge. I thought you were gonna go rather than put it on you, but you saved yourself there. You were just <laughs> because we 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 tend to talk about what we know a little more of in the U.S., despite our our global audience. Um, but that you were gonna, you know, you were gonna try to build the global audience on the backs of our of our U.S. based audience. But instead of dumping on them, you took it on your own shoulders, which I respect. Well, thank you. I would say yeah. two things. Number one, when you have such few character flaws as I do, it's easy to <laughs> readily admit them, right? Because you don't get a chance to do it very often. The second thing I would say is I think we might want to start making some marketing expenditures in the cricket right. world, right? To grow that audience, right? Well, uh, well yeah. I, hopefully the sponsorship isn't quite the same as the, uh, is the, the television distribution rights deals. I mean, you know, their, their, their outfield wall runs for about a mile, doesn't it? I figure <laughs> that we can carve up a little spot in there and get a, get a wait, what uh, DP and McGee sign out there. Yeah, and the matches can go for days on end, right? Right. Which sometimes, right. right. We, to our listeners, that's how right. our podcasts feel. Right. Right. Yeah. When you guys don't even know, we have to cut ourselves off every show. We go. <laughs> we go on forever. <laughs> oh man, that's interesting. That's interesting. Definitely something to watch. So, um, the uh, Stanley Cup playoffs started this week, and they went in with some great news uh, about their new television partners. Partners. This was the first year of new deals with uh, ESPN and uh, Turner. Uh, taking over the uh, the broadcast, and uh, they they had a lot to show for it. Uh, under the new deals, uh, nationally televised games were up around 18% compared to the league's final season with NBC uh, uh, last year. Uh, average of 460,000 viewers per game across ABC, ESPN, TNT. TNT accounted for um, the bulk of the games with 51. Uh, they averaged 361,000, uh, which is actually a really substantial increase, almost 30% over uh, NBC Sportsnet from 2020 and 21 season and 24% from the 2019-20 season. So um, really significant. Uh, I happened to pop into a event over at the NHL office last week and the commissioner spoke very glowingly in, in the way that he can about, um, about these partnerships and, and going into it. And I think we've talked about it on the show. These were the two right partners for the NHL. Um, you know, the numbers, the numbers still may not big be big by some, a couple of the other sports uh, ratings that we see and viewerships that we see. We'll talk a little more in, in the show about what the NBA is doing, uh, and obviously the NFL remains the king here. But uh, but this these are good partners that know how to cross promote. One of the other things I saw is that particularly on the Turner uh, games that they had a nice increase. Uh, in female viewership, which, uh, you know, I think is largely being attributed to the fact that their ability to promote against a number of different different types of programming that, say, ESPN doesn't have. Yeah, there's some great storylines, some great, um, 
you know, some great matchups, even in this first round, right? Penguins Rangers should be a great series. Uh, I know one game does not a series make, but uh, Carolina put a hurting on the, sure did. on the Bruins. And, and then you've got, uh, you've got the Panthers who had such a great regular season. I personally think it's, you know, the playoffs and in, in hockey are really tough. And if you don't have a roster full of people who are used to that grind, um, it's tough to get over the hump, even with a great regular season. We'll see if um, if the Panthers can do that. You know, we talked a little bit, you know, great ratings. And, and I agree, they're great partners for the NHL. Um, I know we're getting ready for our guests soon, but I just want to talk briefly about uh, the NFL draft last week. Mm. Bad news, ratings were down 20%. Good news uh, was that the overall audience was still over 10 million people. Well, I would thought, thought you were going to say the good news is everybody's talking about how great a draft the Jets had. They did have a great draft. And I was on a call with somebody from a very successful team that was one of the last teams to pick last week. And I said, you know, they had, had four great picks and they have eight great needs. So, uh, <laughs> But they are still undefeated. So we'll see what happens as they go into OTAs and they go into camp and then preseason. But, uh, you know, for the Jets fans, for Jets Nation, hope always springs. Well, listen, what, you know, the thing about the NFL draft that is so impressive is just the show that they're able to put on and what it was and meant. And this was exactly the thing that Rene Anderson spoke with us about on one of our early episodes, talking not just about having events that create some degree of uh, evergreen status for a property as it moves through the year, but that there's full engagement, right? I mean, the, the fact that they're bringing fans in and Vegas was, a, you know, Vegas did what Vegas did, not surprisingly. Tons of people there, lots of fun bringing the fans, you know, into the selection process, um, great representation across the board. Uh, and then you just have all kinds of talk value for the next day because the media is all over this. And, you know, listen, I was, I was seeing something about, you know, the popularity of the NFL draft as a, as a broadcast product and how Mel Kuyper, you know, was, has been such a big part of that. And he remains so. Now, if you look or even listen to Mel Kuyper, he's about as like old school feeling as it comes. But have you ever seen a guy with as much command of one singular topic as that dude? Yeah, uh, yeah. The the cab drivers in London who are required <laughs> to to um, to memorize every right. street in London, yeah. but otherwise, no, I have not. Yeah. You know, um, it, I don't know if you saw the news, but uh, you know the the Jaguars were on the clock. And they knew they were going to pick Trayvon Walker, right? That was right. But they, they milked it and they put some drama into it. And pretty much as soon as his name was, was announced, apparently the, the lions put their card in, um, you know, the, and the NFL was pissed, right? Because, you know, you want to, you know, it's sort of like, yeah. uh, uh, you know, a game show where you go to break or, or, a, or one of those home refurbishment shows where you go to break before you come back and reveal right. the house, you want to build up right. a little bit of drama, but yeah. I guess the lions were so excited to pick uh, the hometown well, kid, Aiden Hutchinson out of Michigan. They, they didn't want to wait. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Roger needs to probably get back and collect himself after the aggressive man hugs he does um with each with each player i mean i i don't i don't think he could do those you know without have given yourself at least a minute well you know he's in good shape for that right he starts he, tra he starts training during the combine right he goes around the office he 
he starts with you know the little people right you know the, the yeah. diminutive Rainy anderson <laughs> you know and then works his way up to the bigger people around yeah. the office so yeah. by the time it's draft night he's he's in prime hugging <laughs> shit. oh man all right what do you say we take a break sounds good we'll be right back it's time for our guest Thrilled to be joined by Kelly Flato, the EVP and head of events group at the NBA. With stops at ProServe, SFX Sports, Coca-Cola, CAA, Live Nation, and the NBA, Kelly's resume is world-class. But beyond that, and I can personally attest, she brings a very rare combination of talent, instinct, focus, and dedication to everything she does. Truly, it's just a marvel to watch. So with that, Kelly, welcome. Thank you, David. It is um, it is great to be here. Of course, I didn't close my inbox, so oh, I'm going to do right. that so it doesn't keep binging at me. That's all right. We know you're busy. We know you're busy, and we've wanted to get you on this show, so we're we're very happy to be able to spend. Thank some you time for with having you. me, uh, DP and Tim. Thanks. Oh, so thank uh, let's let's start with some good news before actually asking a question out of the playoffs. Um, and this is just coming out today across 43 games in the first round, the NBA delivered its best audience since 2018, averaging 2.99 million viewers across ABC, TNT, ESPN and NBA TV. And that comes without any game sevens. That's up 12 percent from last year and a whopping 55 percent from two years ago, which, of course, is the bubble year, which we are going to talk about. But so. Congratulations to uh, to you and the league as uh, as we get you know moving deeper into the playoffs. Well, incredible competition on the court. Some great veteran stars from Steph Curry and Chris Paul and Giannis Antetokounmpo. I know Tim's practiced that name quite a bit, and some incredible <laughs> rising stars, Tyrese Maxey and Jason Tatum and uh, Ja Morant. Um, what incredible highlights we're getting out of them. So um, it's been um, it's been terrific to see the competition on the on the floor. And it's been uh, it's been really exciting. Uh, all of our playoff games have been sold out. So it's great to see our buildings um, back um, full and uh, with incredible energy. Um, the games really have been fun to watch. And you're right, the, the level of, of stars, both kind of a uh, little more mature and, and new has uh, has been so much fun to watch. So let's jump right into it. You have held a number of positions at the NBA. We're going to start focusing on the NBA with okay. increasing responsibility. So give us an overview of the journey that you've taken at the NBA and, and how you ended up landing in this uh, as the event lead. So I actually think my journey here at the NBA um, is representative of the arc of my career, which is um, I have long been a utility player, and I'm going to use the um, another sport as an analogy and use you know use baseball. And I play a number of positions in the field. I hold my own um, at um, at the plate. And while utility players don't typically make headlines, um, they do um, help teams succeed. So they play several positions on. Uh, on the team, but they only take up one spot on on the roster. So um, versatility, um, you know, helps individuals that are utility players um, step in and play plenty of different roles. When I came to the NBA, I started in business development, 
and my role was to um, help illustrate the value of our IP and our fans to prospective partners. My role was to uh, both build the brand and generate revenue, one not at the expense of the other. I then uh, transitioned into a role where I was managing both ideation and activation for our marketing partners. Um, took a short-term role in marketing, then transitioned into content development. And about six years ago, when a legend here at the NBA and in the sports business, Ski Austin, retired after 25 years leading the events team here, I stepped into that role and really have um, since then taken a very commercial approach to, um, to our events taking all of the experiences that, um, that I've had and looking at our events to develop new assets and monetize the ones that we've had. So, um, and that's been um, an, incredible, an incredible journey for me and my ability to have worked in several departments here and given how cross-functional my role is today, um, all of those past experiences have um, helped me, I think, be a, a stronger team player in our organization. Let's go back to the playoffs for a second, if you don't mind, Kelly. Yeah. What role does your your current group play um, in, in the playoffs in general and the and the finals in particular, which has become a spectacular unto itself? Uh, it, it has indeed. So, in terms of uh, my role in events, I mentioned how cross functional it is. So, we work across various departments in the league between basketball operations and communications and security and facilities and uh, broadcast operations and media and technology and digital and social media. So during the playoffs, we're pulling all of those teams together to get ready for the finals. The teams manage the playoffs operationally. When we get to the finals, um, it, it becomes something where we supplement and support the teams. There are so many things that happen at the finals as the crescendo of our season, an incredible competition that our uh, commissioner has media availability, our marketing partners are activating on the ground in finals markets. We do legacy projects in both markets. We bring in international media to the finals. We've got a large group that travels with us from city to city. We um, you know, also have an incredible broadcast operation set up. We focus on um, elements of our broadcast in unique ways. And then we take that broadcast and um, we get it out to 215 countries and territories. So um, an incredible team effort and a terrific opportunity for our teams and, um, and the league to work together on something. And, we also see incredible activation in local markets. I think last year, um, Milwaukee did an incredible job of activating the Deer District and they're out um, now uh, doing the same. I saw uh, people were lined up uh, with ponchos on because even the rain could not stop them from cheering on, uh, cheering on their team in the, Deer, in the Deer District. And David and I have some past experience in naming rights, so I follow some of those and um, I know that uh, they'll bring on someone, uh, someone great for the Deer District. Yeah, we had a good opportunity to chat with Peter Fagan a couple episodes ago. And uh, the Deer District is just, you know, one of the great, I think, developments for a city uh, to rally around the team. It was real, and, and it really became a factor, it felt like, in the strength of that 
organization, but that's one of the great things about about fans really just getting behind their team and just building momentum as you move through the playoffs. And and by the way, Tim did predict already that the the Bucks uh, Bucks are going to repeat. So. He's on the hook there. Thanks for reminding me. And that's comp- see, I can't even and, say it now. That's uh, the difference between Kelly and I. I had to practice it ad nauseum, yeah, and it just yeah, rolled right yeah, off yeah. the tongue. Well, I, I guess he, more practice than you do. Tim. She probably yeah. has him at at quite a few appearances since he is his status as a, as the star of the league or one of the top stars of the league. The bubble that was built in Orlando for the 2020 NBA Finals was considered a massive success and and really kind of set the standard for what that whole bubble concept was going to be. And you guys were out there. You were the point person on that. And it was really, it made me happy to see that you got the do that you got on that, by the way, I will add, uh, because I know how much, I know how much work you uh, were putting into it as I, I know how much work you put into everything you do, but talk about the, the legacy of that. What are the, what are the lessons for, um, you know, general operation now, uh, and and what things were you most proud of uh, with your team in in pulling that all off? There are so many takeaways and lessons from the bubble that um, I think we could talk about this for um, for an age. There's really two that stand out for me. Uh, one is the importance of listening, and it reminded us how how important it was to listen. As we were building an unprecedented basketball city at Disney World, we listened to so many people to make sure that we could get it right and that we could continue to make improvements along the way. So um, we listened you know, before to um, our players. We worked very closely with the um, Players Associ- Association Executive Committee We worked very closely with our cross-functional groups. We sought a lot of advice. We had an incredible cadre of medical experts that guided us every step of the way. So listened every step of the way before we arrived in Orlando and working with our partners at Disney. I I truly believe that maybe no no other two brands could have um, put together what we did in the time in which we had to do it. And they were incredible, incredible partners. Um, you know, so we built this basketball city. Once we got there, then we had, you know, at, at its peak, we were about 6,500 people living on this campus. And so every day we had to listen and make changes along the way about what was working and what wasn't. We listened to our fans. We said that this was, you know, essentially something that had not been done before, but hugely important that we could bring our fans into the experience. We listened to our marketing partners. We worked with Microsoft to create a virtual fan platform. One of the um, one of the indelible memories for me that I will always uh, take away is the day that talk about listening to people. And um, we took a group of players over to the courts before they were going to play for the first time to make sure that they could bounce the ball and really get comfortable and and you know tell us what tweaks that they wanted to make and we had our virtual fan beta up we had um you know staff from around the league that were part of our virtual fans and chris paul was watching them and everyone's waving to him and he said hey kelly can i ask you a question i said sure and he said 
is there any way for us to put our families and friends in the virtual fan spots right behind the bench? Because when we're playing, we're so used to having our, you know, our family behind the bench. And I said, absolutely. And so we changed the setup of the virtual fans so that um, their, uh, their family and friends could, could join. And we had, uh, we had a lot of special guests come in as virtual fans. You always expect great questions out of Wake Forest grads. I told that to Tim a lot. Oh my. <laughs> I didn't even uh, realize yes. I was walking. I was walking right into that. Yes. You can talk about Chris Paul all day. <laughs> and, and and then the other part. So, you know, the first thing that really stands out in terms of learnings is the importance of listening. And, and I try and remember that now every day and, and gathering feedback um, from people because it, that was really critical for um, for it to work. And the second part was um, our culture. And um, there was a, a lot that was happening in um, in the country, obviously around the world, but in particular in, in the country um, that summer. And, um, you know, where um, we embrace listening to our players, what's important to our players is important to um, the league. We have a long history of, um, of players that speak out on important issues. Bill Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Oscar Robertson, and um, we've been doing this work for decades, long before I came to the league. And so um, coming out of the summer of 2020, I mean, there was a very unique moment. I think the date was August 27th, where um, Jacob Blake was uh, shot and our players took a moment to say, are we going to um, keep going? And that was a very seminal moment um, for me as just a human being to see how important that moment was and how they would react to it and what they would do next. And I think there are two um, incredibly lasting and, and important um, things that came out of um, that summer in the bubble. And, and one was uh, both with the Players Association, again, going back to listening, one was the NBA Foundation and the other was the um, National Basketball Social Justice Coalition. And the, um, the foundation was seated with $300 million from our uh, NBA Board of Governors. Um, and it's about creating employment opportunities and economic um, and career advancement for, um, for uh, Black youth. And to date, we've awarded 118 grants totaling more than $33 million. So that's pretty incredible coming out of um, coming out of that summer. And then the other is the uh, the Social Justice Coalition. Um, I have a colleague now uh, named James Cadogan, who's our executive director, who spends most of his time um, uh, in Washington uh, D.C. as much as he does here in the league office. And he focuses on policy. And there's a large group of people across the league, and um, both with our players and our teams. Um, and with James and his staff that are um, focusing on policy issues, meaningful reform, um, particularly around voting rights, criminal justice, and, um, and policing. So incredibly important work to us and something we're really um, very dedicated to. So two really important things that came out of um, the bubble and the pandemic, um, you know, things that we didn't anticipate going in, but really positive legacies coming out. Wow. 
Now, how great is it that your players didn't listen when there were certain voices who were saying shut up and dribble, right? I mean, all of Absolutely. the good that's, that's been done. So, Absolutely. With all due respect to some of the other major leagues, you know, the NBA is, was really the first global sports league um, and continues to lead that way. You know, you talked about your predecessor, Ski Austin. I remember the first event I did with, with the NBA was the McDonald's Championships back in 1998. Um, as I recall, there were no Wake Forest players uh, involved at that time, but it I was, was still at, it was, it was still was a great at, event. But I was at McDonald's then, so okay, you know. well, yeah. So. <laughs> but but you know, going back almost twenty five year, over twenty five years, um, again, what is the events group to continue to grow the NBA brand uh, around the world? So there are a range of things that we do here in events. I'm going to start with, you talked about the um, McDonald's championships and talk about the impact of our international games. And I am so thrilled that we will um, be back in international markets next season. The NBA has played games in 17 countries outside of the United States and Canada. We are going to uh, Tokyo in the fall. Uh, we were there in uh, 2019. We've hosted 12 games dating back to 1990 when the Sun and the Jazz played in, in Japan. So um, to your point, Tim, we have um, been very invested in growing the game globally. Our um, international games are just one example of that. From developing markets, I was incredibly fortunate in 2019 to bring the uh, first um, competitive games from a North American professional sports league to India. I have stories for days about that as well. Um, you know, we go to markets like Mexico and we've been in Europe and again, 17 countries outside of the US and Canada. So um, our international games uh, are, are one aspect of it. And I'm gonna go to the other end of the spectrum, which is the importance of youth and grassroots and um, the programming that we do there. Um, one of our uh, global programs is the Junior NBA. Hugely important that um, we're putting basketballs in, in kids' hands. One of the things that I uh, personally love about working at the NBA is, um, you know, it's a game with um, simple game, easy access. Whether you are in a, you know, uh, rural environment and you're putting a, you know, makeshift, uh, you know, peach basket on the, the side of a barn, or you're in a dense urban environment and you're creating your own hoop, you can play by yourself or with a dozen people, young or old, rich or poor, it really um, makes no difference. And so grassroots basketball and basketball development is, um, is hugely important to us, uh, not just players, but players, their families, coaches, uh, also, our Basketball Without Borders program, uh, a grassroots program that we have been dedicated to for over 20 years. Uh, we do four a year. It is exactly as it sounds, Basketball Without Borders. We bring together um, elite youth players, um, and we are hugely committed to also um, community service and life skills in the markets in, in which we go to. So uh, we're on four continents um, every year. We took a bit of a hiatus during the pandemic and we're thrilled that we're going to be back with that program this year as well. And then in between fan engagement, everything from, we got pretty good at virtual events during the yeah, pandemic. Yeah. Um, 
we uh, we have an event we do in Brazil called NBA House, and it's 18 days during the finals. And during the pandemic, we uh, we switched to a verbal or a verbal a virtual execution, and um, and we were able to reach 200,000 Brazilians um, through that program. But we're really excited that we'll be back um, live in market with NBA House um, this summer. So grassroots youth fan engagement. And um, and bringing our competition to um, to markets around the world. That's that's great. And seventeen countries and, and four continents is very impressive. But keep me honest here, David. I think we have listeners in more countries on more continents, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, well, we're definitely you know I think we have the continent beat um, yeah. uh, aspect of it. I'd have to go and do a check of the latest data. Uh, on the countries, I think we're. I think it's pretty close. Yeah, so we're. It's not a stretch to say that we're bigger than the NBA. It, yeah, by that measure. It, by that. By that measure. <laughs> now, the the penetration factor might be a little softer. But listen, thanks for that. That that background. I mean, I think I think what you just described is in support. You know, of of Tim's comment about where you guys have been have been out in front of that and really leading it, not just kind of throwing events out there, but really building audiences. Kelly, you have a very broad marketing services background, including obviously sponsorship consulting, brand activation, uh, both on the sports and entertainment side. How has that helped you in this current role? And I'm particularly interested about your time with with Live Nation to the entertainment value aspect of your uh, of your career. And babe, before you answer that, because I have fact checkers talking in my ear, I was not at McDonald's in 1998 because I was working with Kelly in Washington, D.C. at ProServe. So we got our producers, uh, our producers are always on us to make sure that, that we, we, you know, give our listeners the honest information. You, you were at a McDonald's. You were I was, I, 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 I think, I, think I had stopped at a McDonald's drive through uh, there, um, okay. maybe working at it or getting, you know, getting a Big Mac. Not sure. No, we kept we kept David too busy at ProServe to be able to stop at McDonald's late nights, early mornings. Um, yes. he, didn't, he didn't have time for that. He didn't yeah. have time for that. So going back to your question about past experience applied to um, applied to today, um, I think every experience is a series of building blocks. And um, I've been so fortunate in my um, in my career, most of which has been spent in sports and entertainment, um, to experience what that's like. And you know, I'm so fortunate to work in an industry where people are exuberant about the product. Some might um, suggest irrational about the product um, at some points. I mean, in good time and in bad times, sports and entertainment have played an incredible role. I am sure, I know David, because you're a music guy, um, that you can remember the first concert that you went to, who you were with and what your favorite song was. I know that, um, you know, you. we all remember when our team won the championship and how it felt in that moment and what who we were with and what we were doing. And then, of course, in times of tragedy, sports have played an incredible role for me. Um, you know, I remember what it was like for um, the Yankees in particular to come back after 9-11 and how poignant a moment that was when the Saints won the Super Bowl after Hurricane Katrina. So in moments of, you know, good times and in bad times, um, 
sports has always been um, a part of that. And we're bombarded, I mean, more now today than ever, with thousands of messages every day. The ones that really stand out and that we pay attention to when we're scrolling or talking to friends are the ones that um, we're most passionate about. And um, uh, David will um, David will remember this. Maybe I might get a laugh out of him. We used to have a line in our pitches at ProServe um, that was, when there is passion, there's demand, and where there's demand, there's an opportunity, opportunity. to leverage it. Yeah, I think I used that in the upfront part when we were talking about cricket. <laughs> yes, and well, I still use it. Hard. I still that, use it. You know, that remains that remains as true today as it did when we were at ProServe 20, 25 years ago. Um, and so that's what I get to do every day. You know, I started out marketing through sports. And when Seth Matlins recruited me to go to CAA, I then was marketing through entertainment. I was representing corporate clients in the sports industry. I was then representing corporate clients in the entertainment industry. Um, it all comes back to ProServe because when Peter Farnsworth then recruited me to come to the NBA, he said, you need to take your sports experience and your entertainment experience and take your game global. And so um, 15 years later, and here I am. And, you know, coming out of the pandemic, I would say this was true long before the pandemic. You know, many books have been written about the experience economy, but coming out of the pandemic, particularly Gen Z and millennials, um, one in three people are saying, um, they are more interested in going to a live event than buying a product. And so um, it really speaks to, in my mind, that sense of um, that sense of community and the importance of people being together and gathering um, as a community around something that they really love. So I, I feel incredibly fortunate um, to be able to, to do that every day. Hey, by the way, about a year ago, I did finally forgive Seth for taking you to LA, but so I'm good with him. We're good. <laughs> good. I'm glad. <laughs> You'll be pleased to hear that. Arnsworth, I don't know. I don't know how to follow that up, David. Your 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 capacity for forgiveness is just incredible. Yeah, yeah. It was only, you know, you know it was several decades in the coming. <laughs> um, so <laughs> Kelly, where do you see the greatest opportunities for continued growth with the league? And and the flip side of that coin is what what kind of challenges are you guys, uh, you know, there's that saying, the, the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. But, you know, to the extent that you can talk about what challenges you might be facing, where's the growth opportunities and where are the challenges? Yeah, enormous opportunities for growth, particularly outside the United States. And um, Africa is a big part of our, our future. Um, it's a continent with roughly 1.3 billion people. Um, and half of the population is under the age of 20. So an incredible um, opportunity. We're at the point now in the league where 10% of our players are either um, born in Africa or one of their parents was born in Africa. Mm. 10%, it's, wow. really, it's really incredible. So I, our engagement on the continent goes back um, you know, two decades. So we have um, you know, laid a foundation for um, our work in Africa. Um, I want to say it's now been seven or eight years since we opened our first office 
in Africa. We now um, have opened our second office. Our first is in uh, Johannesburg in South Africa, and we recently opened an office in uh, Nigeria. So um, we started the Basketball Africa League. We're in the middle of our second season now, and it's been an incredible run. We've got strategic investors like President Obama and so many other incredible business leaders. And and we think that basketball be, can become a top sport in um, in Africa over the next decade. So we're really focused um, there um, uh, with our international growth overall, and then specifically in 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 Africa and the uh, investments that we've made there. And then um, we're particularly focused on um, becoming more of a direct to um, consumer business and engaging directly with our fans. I mean, ninety nine percent of our um, our fans may never step into an NBA arena and they experience our game through um, through the media. So we want to make the viewing experience more personalized, more interactive, more immersive, and the rapidly changing media environment, which I know you spend a lot of time talking about on um, on this show, certainly presents challenges, but also presents um, enormous, um, enormous opportunities. And one of the things that um, has been uh, a cornerstone for us at the league and always will be is, um, you know, our willingness and commitment to to innovate and, um, and to adapt. And so that's, that's what we'll do in this in this changing media environment. Hey, Kelly, if you could go back for a second and talk about the, um, the progress on the uh, Basketball Africa League. Uh, it, we know it, it was delayed largely because of COVID. I know there were a lot of expectations with launch. You had some personnel changes over in the office that were, were running that. Is it back on track? And are you guys as excited about ever uh, about the potential for it? Um, and, and really, progress-wise, are you where you want to be? Yeah, absolutely. Um, incredibly excited about it. We um, we changed the the format uh, going into our second year. Uh, when we launched last year, we were still, um, you know, in the midst of a global um, a global pandemic, and we, um, you know, from the bubble experience we had in Orlando, we went to a wobble for the NBA. We did a gobble for the G League. And then um, back to a bit of a bubble for the BAL when we were in Rwanda last year. So we took all of those learnings um, and you know, we operated without fans last year in our first season. And this year um, made some changes to the format. Um, and so we have been in three different locations. Um, we played the you know, first chapter of the, um, of the BAL um, season, as a, you know, uh, which is largely a tournament in um in dakar senegal and um where we also have an office i had forgotten about that and then um we went to cairo and we played then the second set of games in in cairo and that just finished up about 10 days ago and then may 21st we'll have the uh, quarterfinals the semifinals and the finals uh back in uh kigali rwanda so um you know we have brought the you know, the expertise of the NBA, not just from a, a basketball perspective, but a media perspective and have an incredible team on the ground in um, Africa with some support from um, from our folks um, here in the States to um, to produce um, produce that tournament. And um, it's been a great success. And I know um, when we finish this year, 
May 29th, we will sit down and talk about all of the things that um, that worked and didn't work and continue to adapt and um, evolve that property for um, for next year. And we'll just continue to grow it. Looking forward to seeing that. Before we let you go, one last question. You were talking earlier about being in the bubble and how you sort of merge the physical and the digital worlds through Microsoft. Um, with all the talk about Web 3.0 and the metaverse, what are you guys uh doing to sort of embrace that and stay ahead of the curve as you have in so many other ways with technology um for a long long time well we're really we're very fortunate we've got a very young and tech tech savvy fan base um the metaverse has been part of our business for a while now i mean the two uh the uh incredibly popular nba 2k 2k game um is um is a metaverse we've created our own basketball themed world and in fact taking it back to the bubble we took something out of the game and we built a barbershop on our campus inside the bubble that looked like the virtual barbershop uh inside the 2k game and um so you know blockchain driven technologies um many of our teams um introduced this year we have as well um, two things we did at All Star this year um, that my team led and and I'm incredibly proud of is that one of the things we did was we created the first digital shoppable art gallery in a city. So um, we took over, um, you know, uh, billboards and sides of buildings in um, in Cleveland, and we created NFTs where um, it was a collectible. And then not only were you getting this unique piece of artwork that was um, designed specifically for the occasion, but then you got a physical replica of the court. So we had a 75th anniversary edition, and then we also paid tribute to um, the games that had taken place in the state of Ohio um, throughout the year. So um, that was one activation. The other thing we did that was um, new for us with NFTs is we launched the NBA All-Star VIP Pass, um, which was digital, so is both physical and digital. So um, we auctioned them off. We um, used this program to help launch uh, Dapper Labs auction uh, platform with whom um, we're in business with NBA Top Shot. And what we then auctioned off was 30 NFTs where the... Um, uh, the bidders were bidding on not only the digital NFT that were all one of one, which makes them particularly unique, but also um, you were the owner of a VIP package to the next five all-stars. So um, we did 30 of those and then we gave one away um, to, uh, to a fan for um, the 75th anniversary. And what we anticipate is we'll see those change hands on the secondary market. Um, over the years and ideally, um, you know, increase in value as well. But again, uh, listening to our fans and understanding what they wanted to offer something that had never been offered before. It'll be great to have you back around maybe All-Star next year or something and talk about uh, about that, because that will be an interesting thing to follow, like how the value of these things um, and where they're going, because this obviously is is part of the future of, of the sports business and uh, and being able to track that. You know, yep. you know, right at the beginning is going to be fun. Okay, we know you're in. You, we know you're incredibly busy. We appreciate you taking the time because I think this has been a great discussion. We've covered a lot of ground. But officially, before you go, 
we have a couple questions that we want to okay. we want to hit you with. And the first one is, tell us how you got your start in the business. Where'd your career get started? Where'd you start it? So I actually think it goes all the way back. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna date myself to the um, '94 World Cup, of which five games were held in in Washington D.C. And a colleague of mine was working on um, on the World Cup, and after that, started her um, started her own agency that uh, was called Gansey Productions in DC. And we did everything from the Pope's visit to Baltimore to I did advance for the First Lady. And the last big event that I did with Gansey was the um, in the for the '96 Olympics. We really were punching above our weight, and um, we won a piece of business with Coca Cola, which started my um, long uh, history and friendship um, at Coke. And um, we got a piece of business to do all of the marketing presence for the outlying venue. So, uh, you know, rowing took place in Ocoee, Tennessee, and sailing in Savannah, Georgia, and softball in Columbus, Georgia, and um, soccer took place in uh, Orlando and Birmingham, Alabama. I spent a lot of time in Birmingham that summer. And after the 96 Olympics, um, I, uh, I transitioned jobs and I was really fortunate to be hired by uh, Jeff Knapple and Seth Matlins at, um, at Donald Dell's ProServe when we were located in, uh, in Arlington with an incredible view of the Washington Monument. And I had a number of clients there, but the, the, my two primary clients were Hershey's and Staples. So my 15 second claim to fame on the Hershey business was when Dennis Crawford from Cleveland, Tennessee, won a million dollars with a 40-yard field goal in the Hershey's Million Dollar Kick, and the cameraman thought I was his wife. <laughs> <laughs> and it led to um, my uh, my first TV appearance. Uh, my other uh, my other sort of seminal moment uh, at uh, at ProServe at the beginning here was. Um, was working with uh, working with David on uh, a Staples Center naming rights deal, which first of its kind, um, you know, a 20-year deal uh, worth $120 million. I mean, just landmark deal. And I think in the last year, Crypto.com just took over for Staples Center um, at $700 million yeah. for 20 years. Yeah. So, um, oh, how times have changed. Yep. And we survived that earthquake. Yes. And there was an, the day before the building opened, um, yeah. there was there was an earthquake uh, in Los Angeles. The amazing thing about the Hershey Million Dollar Kick was we had back to back winners. Yes. The, the, I did not work the year before. I, I think um, I was new to the I was new to the account. And uh, the year before there was a, a million dollar winner. I'm not sure if anybody now I, even provides insurance for those types of uh, contests anymore. You know, we had all kinds of goofy stuff after that. After that, um, one piece of advice for somebody looking to break into the business. Gosh, guys, I'm a traditionalist. Um, I don't think there's any substitute for hard work. Um, and everyone that um, that I talk to that's coming out of college or who's young in the business, I you know I say the same thing, which is get your foot in the door and work hard and learn and be a sponge and take everything in. So um, I'm not sure that everyone gives that advice today, but um, 
it has um, it has served me. Um, it has served me well, and and uh, I continue to um, give that advice to um, to everyone I talk to in the industry. Well, having had the opportunity to work uh, with you, Kelly, um, you are you are one of the hardest workers I've ever known. But it goes well beyond that. You're 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 as I said in the intro, you're focused and dedicated, uh, and always smart and asking questions. So um, those are things that have served you well. Uh, as well. It wasn't just, it wasn't just hard work. You brought, you brought so many other things to the party. Well, thank you, David. And still do, obviously. So congrats on everything. Good luck with the rest of uh, the playoffs. We will be watching. We'll see if Tim's prediction is right. Uh, Look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thanks. I look forward to coming back at All-Star next year. All right. Well, love to have you. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks. Thank you to Kelly Flato from the NBA for taking some time to talk with us during this uh, busy NBA playoff time. She mentioned she was a utility player, and that's the key to her success. I'll say this. If she's a utility player, and she is, she's like the Shohei Otani of utility players, uh, to, to use the baseball analogy that she was mentioning. But Yeah, I was, um, was going to go with Craig Biggio, right? Yeah. It all starts at three different positions. <laughs> And the Hall of Fame, but uh, Otani is a great call. So great discussion. We're coming to the end of the show, but first, as we like to do, we take a look at storylines to focus on this t- uh, this week. Tim, what are you going to have your eyes on? Yeah, I'm going a little bit broader than sports this week. I am looking forward to the full uh, concert video of Fez from last week, and I'm sorry that I missed it. Truly sorry that I missed it, um, because I love when you do post content on your social platforms. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, but, you know, once again, I'm going to give a shout out to uh, Ivy League Sports, lacrosse in particular. Uh, my beloved Big Rat of Cornell have made the Ivy League tournament as the co-winner of the regular season. So with a at, at uh, uh, an automatic qualifying bid to the NCAAs in, uh, at stake, um, it's, it's going to be a great tournament with uh, – Harvard, Yale, and and Penn alongside uh, Cornell. We are going to have to do, in addition to pickleball, take an episode and talk some lax and just have you, because um, I just want to see you geek out like to levels that we haven't seen. Well, you and I have a mutual friend, right? Mark yes, Riccio from USA Lacrosse. Um, so we're, we're going to have, uh, we're he, he won't, have he, would, on. he wouldn't big time us, would he? No, no, he's already uh, he's already okay. expressed Good. interest, and now we're just putting you know not so subtle pressure on him because we'll certainly hashtag him or uh, you know yes. when we when we post the episode we will uh, right. we will hyperlink to his we, LinkedIn profile. We will so. we will leak things out about this just to pressure him into things. It seems yeah, to be a popular strategy. Yeah, but he is one of the best, um, yeah. and I love what he's doing at lacrosse. So as far as the Fez videos go, we will put out stuff that is not highly embarrassing. Unfortunately, from this gig, there's a good chance a lot of it would be. Uh, We didn't even get to our third set because things dragged on. And that's usually where we play things where people get up and dance. We didn't even get around to it. But it was such an amazing time to be back with people and, uh, and playing. So we absolutely had a blast. And the audience was very forgiving, which is nice. Listen, anytime I hear something like that, where this is the, you know, this was the first time you guys played out in over two years, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, anything that uh, 
smacks of a return to normalcy makes me really happy. So I'm yeah. glad you guys got to do it. And I was serious. I do. I do love watching you uh, guys. We appreciate videos. that. Uh, I'm going to try to get my uh, get my butt on a couch and watch a little bit of the F1 race from Miami, uh, which is the crypto.com uh, F1 race new circuit built around the Hard Rock Stadium. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm interested. I would have loved to see this race be a little more uh, downtown in the streets of Miami, but it's so problematic to do those things. Uh, but Miami's a good market for F1. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how it looks. And for those of you in the business that have not done Formula One hospitality, if you ever get a chance to do it, it's it's primo. So so try to do it at least once. Um, right. to, to quote uh, the famous uh, the famous Ferris Bueller, uh, if you have the means, I highly <laughs> recommend it. <laughs> no, do an assignment in F1 so you can work with <laughs> get a lanyard. Um, well, that's it. That's another episode of Wait. What? Sports Biz Chat with DP and McGee. Thank you again to the NBA's Kelly Flato. And we want to sincerely, as always, thank you for listening. You can keep up with us, uh, all things related to the show, by following us on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Uh, and now even on YouTube, where we, uh, where we uh, try to put our video wait, clips. We, wait, what? Yeah, we... we um, <laughs> which one of us is the social media manager, by the way? Um, considering my complete ignorance uh of the fact that we're no, no. on youtube i'm, yeah. I'm tagged I you're every once in a while every once in a while we just open up new accounts <laughs> um so you i don't i i probably forgot to tell you um okay, but yeah well. we're just starting to put some videos up there so if you want to well, if you want to take, take a look at them and you know without having to go through the whole episode but we do love the fact that you will listen to an episode and subscribe to us on uh, on Apple Podcasts uh, and or Spotify. Uh, so that's it. Until next week, I'm DP. He's McGee. And we will talk soon. Next to